We're looking at the last days through this series, and that's that time period between Jesus's uh, death, resurrection, and ascension on one hand, and on the other end, his return, his second coming. Uh, does it sound like I'm dribbling a basketball while I'm talking to you? Oh, you got me good. Thank you, man. Um, and the passage we'll read from uh, in a few moments tonight, although it was written several thousand years ago, uh, they were in the same chapter of redemptive history that we're in today, awaiting for Jesus' coming. God, in his grace, gave them and us a picture of the, what these last days would look like so that we wouldn't have to fear, so that we wouldn't have to worry when things start to get worse, and so that we would be emboldened to follow Jesus through it all. The Lord wanted us to be prepared and equipped to engage in the spiritual battle that has already come and the, the early church already experienced, but is intensifying as time goes on and will continue to intensify until Jesus's return. We're aware of the enemy's schemes because of what Paul, under the Holy Spirit's guidance, wrote to his disciple, his beloved partner in ministry, Timothy, who he affectionately referred to as his son in the faith. Timothy received the letter while he was ministering uh, at the church, the early church at Ephesus. Chapter two of Timothy ends with Paul's optimistic challenge to believers. He says that they're to patiently instruct those who are opposed to biblical teaching with the hope that God will graciously uh, rescue them from Satan's grasp. Then in chapter three, where our focus has been the first five verses, there is a very clear turn where Paul changes topics. And it's very uh, clearly marked. It's like a great big old neon sign that Paul uh, raises up. And he does so with these words. He says, mark this, mark this. In other words, this is really important, what I'm about to say from God. And then he goes on in the same verse, know that terrible times are on the way. In other words, uh, we don't need, and that, this is what I like about the Bible, we don't need to try to paste a happy face on difficult times. It doesn't mean that we can't still choose joy in those times, but I think this is one of those times. Many of you are grieving during this time period. Many of you feel depressed or you're, you're battling depression or you're, you're battling discouragement. And I think it's acknowledging those things and acknowledging where we are in God's story that helps us to rise above that. And instead of discouragement and despair to respond with joy that manifests itself to getting out there and loving others in Jesus' name as he leads. The aim of this warning, where it says, again, mark this, these terrible times are going to come. The aim of this warning is towards those who call evil good and good evil. But to be clear, Paul's not addressing believers, those who love Jesus, who struggle with some of these evil practices that we're going to read in a moment. He is uh, rather talking to those who live out the lifestyle that we'll, we'll read about with hard hearts and no apologies. 
We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. You can turn with me if you'd like. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. That's not our uh, main passage, but it is a supporting one for tonight. 1 Timothy 1, verse 9. And this illustrates the point that uh, these verses are not for those who struggle. Uh, with sin, because we all struggle with sin, it's for those who live this lifestyle of sin and celebrate it. First Timothy 1 verse 9. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that comes or that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So these lists of sins characteristic of the time in redemptive history that we find ourselves squarely in before Christ returns are aimed at ones who are breaking God's law and don't care. Not those who struggle, but then turn back to God in repentance. These false teachers and pseudo-believers at best worship themselves instead of God, resulting in a life epitomized by loving things and using people instead of loving people and using things. So with that as a background and, and catch up from previous weeks, let's get into the passage we've been focusing on for a number of weeks now in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. So turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And for the most part, this is where we're going to stay. Please join me in prayer. Please agree along with me if this is your desire. Lord, we want all that you have for us in your word. These are serious times. They are sad times. But they are also times pregnant with possibility as we look towards the church to be the answer for unity and justice. Lord, you are the author of unity. Why the world can offer diversity only you offer true, life-changing, sin-breaking unity. And we pray that you would do that, Lord, and that you would help us to do that by teaching us in this passage what it is to recognize the sins that so easily entangle and bring divisiveness into our body that we might see it and not be surprised by it, Lord. But know that it's part of what must happen before you return. And Lord, we long for that day and we pray that you would fill our mind, our imagination, our heart with a desire and a longing to see you face to face, that you would help us hunger and thirst for righteousness as we look towards that day and are filled with hope. Please, Lord, we thank you for the illumination of your word that you, Holy Spirit, provide and we receive it right now. We fix our minds on you and we shut out all distractions. We decide now that no insecure or condemning or distracting thought will be allowed in, but we decide together with the mind of Christ, as your word tells us we possess, 
with the mind of Christ, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to you and turn the eyes of our heart and the ears of our heart directly to your word. And we thank you that you've given us both the power and the desire to walk out whatever you call us to from your word. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. That's a pretty stern warning, isn't it? Have nothing to do with such people. In other words, while we're to be in the world, we're also to be separated from those that claim to be Christians or or claim to be preaching some sort of truth, but are actually preaching poison. The problem Kimball has pointed out so well in this series with those who reject God and his church during this last days is that they have a terminal heart disease. A heart problem where their love is not for God and neighbor, but rather love for self and empty pleasures not found in the author of pleasure itself, Jesus Christ. And those who live in rebellion against God, both inside and outside the church today, have the same heart disease. The dominating religion of our day, as once again Kimball has made note of, is to make our, our supreme love the pagan trinity of me, myself, and I, instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. More specifically, the worship of self says today, if I feel something to be true, regardless of the facts, it's true. And if you disagree with with my feelings on something, even respectfully, then you are literally assaulting me. It's the same as physically assaulting someone. Furthermore, this self-glorification's central faith tenet is that I'm basically good because I'm God and therefore I don't need a savior. My life and my concerns are central to all. Well, God says different. He says, without me, in the passage we just read from 2 Timothy 3, our anchor passage for this series, that we are naturally people who will love self and not others and God, will love money instead of a rich relationship with the Lord, we're boastful and not humble, we're proud, we're abusive and not caring, we disobey our parents instead of show respect and gratitude, we're ungrateful, we're unholy, we're without love, we're unforgiving, we're slanderous, we're without self-control, we're brutal, we're not lovers of good, we're treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, that is looking the part in some regards, but denying its power. That was certainly me before I received Christ. I went to church every Sunday as a teenager and I knew the talk. But my heart was certainly far from him and I was guilty of all of these. And we pick up in the list tonight of dark evils lurking in the shadow of this religion of self-glorification. We pick up with the phrase, without love. 
And without love is not the, just the absence, it's, or it's, it's rather not speaking to the mere absence of romantic love or without affection for stuff and experiences. It means without natural affection. That is, it's a translation of a word that gets to the idea of being specifically without family love. So the poisonous result of this absence of love for family is painted for us in all of its ugliness in another letter that Paul wrote to another church called Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it because you're camped out there in 2 Timothy 3. It says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And again, this passage, as I mentioned earlier, is not implying that, that a believer can't struggle with these things. But what it's speaking to are those who, the soul in danger is is the soul that calls these sins good, lives in and for them, celebrates them, and is totally unrepentant and unapologetic. When we celebrate infidelity, when we celebrate sexual sin of all kinds, whether it's fornication, homosexuality, what, whatever, adultery, not the temptation of those things, but celebrate the lifestyle of living out those things, living in those things, living for those things, when we celebrate these dark actions, the family goes out the window. And where the family goes, there goes society. So we as believers are to love the family, not just our own, but we're to champion God's original plan for the family. Because as Kimball mentioned, it's what kids so desperately need, a loving father and a loving mother. That's what gives life, it's what protects, it's what multiplies, and it's what ensures that a, a community can grow and prosper. Families are the water God uses to heal broken communities and broken people. A, God can, a godly family like the Moretz can take someone outside of that family and show them as the tiny church plant called the Moret Church, the love of Jesus Christ, can't they? In a way that nothing else ever will. And it can bring restoration and provide a, a, a model and a vision for Christ's love for the church in a way that nothing else can, can it? That's why we're committed to safe families. Some of you might be called to jump into safe families to address the breakdown of, of families in this country, which I believe is one of our, our worst and greatest problems. Because when the family fails, so does the culture. We see examples of this in the Old Testament where cultures would rise and fall, where Israel would rise and fall. We see examples in the New Testament all over the place. And all it takes is a walk down many of the neighborhoods in our city to see the result of mom and dad not protecting and loving a child. Through safe families, you can host a child. You can provide resources like rides, supplies. Pretty soon we'll be starting, Ben Connor will be starting a mentoring program where you'll be able to follow that kid all the way till they're 18, if you wish, or even farther, loving them and serving them. 
You can be a host family coach and the list goes on because the goal of safe families is is not to be some kind of hero to the kid and pull them away from the parents. The goal is to be a champion of mom and or dad and help reconcile the family. And one godly family in a community, you can't underestimate the power. We wanna rebuild the broken walls of our city. We wanna fight injustice then it starts in the church house. Do we hear that? It starts in the church house and it starts by serving and loving the least of these in ways that are costly, in ways that take time. They're slow, but they're so worth it. It takes just a handful of families in a community to turn, who love Jesus to turn it inside out. And we can do that. We can change the lives of young people and families through safe families and through that change communities all over the city through our partnership with 14 other churches. Can you imagine the thousands of hours of hosting? And as that begins to multiply and grow and more families take this step, I'll host, I'll give a ride to and from school, I'll babysit because the host families, both mom and dad work, and so I'll babysit for free during the day. As those kind of sacrifices grow, our community will change. This is one of the main ways in which Awaken is being led by God to address the issue we see in our world today, where the tip of the iceberg was the brutal and unjust killing of George Floyd, and underneath, there are a host of injustices lurking. But we believe the biggest injustice by far in at-risk communities, whether they're at-risk emotionally, where there might be more money but families are not intact, or they're at-risk physically and emotionally where families are not intact, is the breakdown of the family. It's it's God's design, and without it, communities will fail. Do we see that? I wanna make sure we get that. When we don't follow God's plan, everything comes, comes unraveled, and it starts in the church, and in the church providing a vision for godly families. And in the church in America today, The divorce rate is the same, or or some statistics say slightly higher even than the world, and may that not be so here in this church. We need more John and Marekka Moretz being little church plants that take in just just a couple new visitors a year into their little Moret church plant to show them the love of Christ and to give them an opportunity to experience his justice and his love. I've gone off my notes here a little bit, so I just need a moment to figure out where I am. I want to, as I mentioned, safe families is a slower way to respond to the issues we see in our culture today, but I believe it will be a more profound and stronger way over months and months and years and years. And you may be called to respond in another way, and that's great, and we celebrate that. But look around you, we're not the biggest church in the world, and we can only do so much, right? And this is where God is leading us, through both safe families, through much prayer, through much fasting, 
through Safe Families and through our partnership with New Wine Worship Service and Pastor Hollis. And I'll get to that more in a minute. But God may call you to do something else. That's awesome. We celebrate that. But as a church as a whole, hey, this, this is where we're going. It's going to be slow. Uh, right now, there, there, not are, there are not a lot of immediate applications, but they will be coming. One immediate application is, again, safe families. Uh, I need to move on quickly here. The second rotten fruit that's reflective of those who reject Christ and his people is the word unforgiving. This one's a bit more cut and dry, and it conveys the attitude of a person who does not respond to a proposal for a truce. They refuse to be reconciled. Because like we said, those who are committed to the God of self, as I was before Christ rescued me, say no to the Lord and to his offer of free grace, unconditional love, and abundant life. And this leads to a refusal to forgive others as well. You know, in my BC days, if you were on my blacklist, that is not a place you wanted to be. If you didn't help Chris Old in his worship services to himself, then you'd be on his blacklist. But as long as you made me feel good and happy about myself, then you were in my good graces. See, our test, I wanna give you two tests here. Are we growing in Christ? And we grow in Christ not by our own effort, by simply saying, Lord, I can't be forgiving. Only you, Jesus, are forgiving, and only through your cross can I walk that out. And I can't be a respecter and a lover of the family apart from you. But Lord, you're the author of the family, and you can help me die to self and respect a family, whether I have one, or respect family, whether I have one or not, and champion the cause and the purpose of the family. But two tests are number one, and this is right out of the word, do we love our enemies? Do we love those who don't like us? Because those who have a hard heart towards God are unforgiving. The other is this, how do we treat our family? How we treat and love and respect our family or fail to do that is who we really are. And if you realize like I do sometimes that man, I've got a long way to go. The goal is not to try harder. The goal is to delight in the Lord more and let him change you. Those are two practicals. I wanna move on to the next here because I wanna spend a bit more time. Uh, this word slanderous. We see this both in the family and in the culture at large. Since the soul without Jesus doesn't seem to, or, or, or doesn't, want to reach agreement with others, and it's unyielding and irreconcilable. It doesn't desire civil conversation, and oftentimes it lacks forgiveness. They respond with the evil of slander, and it is worse today than any time I've seen it in my lifetime, by far. 10 times worse than any other time in my life. And slander is the false accusations growing from false assumptions. And certainly this guy right here, standing up here, who's perspiring greatly, as you probably are out there, is guilty. Without the indwelling spirit, we naturally make unfair assumptions void of any real facts. And even us who love Jesus, again, myself included, often fail to follow the spirit's leading and fall prey to this destructive and divisive sin that undermines the unity of the body of Christ. 
We see it among those who profess Jesus as Lord and those who don't today in the form of what uh, black pastor Vody Bauckham calls ethnic Gnosticism. Maybe you listened to one of his teachings we posted a number of weeks ago. Uh, Vody is the one who coined the phrase ethnic Gnosticism. And here's how he defines it. Gnosticism is an old pagan religion that plagued the early church and also influenced uh, Judaism before Christ. Gnostic adherents claim to have a secret knowledge of God that others don't have, among other things, but we're not going to get into those other doctrines tonight. So ethnic Gnosticism is the belief then that because of one's ethnicity, they're able to know when someone else is racist simply by the color of their skin, regardless of the person's intent or motivation. This belief undermines the gospel and compromises genuine unity and relationships along racial lines within the church. While we can't control what the world does, we can be focused on what God's called us to do as a church. The idea is that you look at the other, whoever the other might be, and you say, because I'm in a situation where I've experienced uh, some type of oppression or where I've been unjustly treated, and that could be unjustly treated at a previous church, that could be unjustly treated because you're a minority, what, whatever else. And you say, because of that, I get to be the judge and jury of your heart or their hearts, whoever the there is, whoever the other is. I get to be the judge and jury and I get to say, what's wrong with their heart without knowing. And the reason, here's the problem. I would go as far as to say that is witchcraft. And here's why. Because when I say that I can be the judge and jury of someone else's heart, I jump into the place of God. Because the prophet Jeremiah tells us that uh, we can't even trust our own heart's assessment of ourselves let alone what someone, else, someone else's heart looks like. It's not consistent with Christ's vision of unity in the church or the biblical model for conflict management within the church laid out in Matthew 18 and elsewhere. To claim that one has secret knowledge because of their race, sex, past, negative experiences, abuse, what have you, it's dangerous. None of us know what another is thinking and cannot assign evil to a whole group, race, ethnicity, or type of personality. It's slander, it's cowardly, and only ends in discord and pain. And biblical conflict actually kills racism because it, it seeks to get to know the other. Instead of making assumptions, it is assumptions and ethnic Gnosticism that created slavery and Jim Crow laws. It was white people who thought that they had secret knowledge of the other and therefore became the judge in the jury. And it's so easy to do that, isn't it? To look towards, look through our own lens of experience and say, I know your type and I know that you are arrogant or that whatever the case may be, Here's what it looks like. Simply go talk to them. That's one of the best things. We, some, of my most, uh, uh, some of my greatest opportunities to grow in the faith are times when people simply came and talked to me about 
issues, things that they saw in my life or things that they wondered about. You know, I just got together with a couple this last weekend who had some questions about the church and we got together and we worked through them. We talked about them. We didn't agree on every issue. We didn't have to. And I've had many uh, conversations like that over the last few months. This is a time, now listen, brothers and sisters, listen. This is a time, unlike any other, where we must follow what the Bible says about biblical conflict. That we're to meet with the other person, we're to talk with them. If it doesn't go well, we, we, we get the pastors together. If it doesn't go well with the pastors, we appeal to uh, the, the larger Great Commission Association of churches. And I mean, the, the list goes on. But there are ways to do it. There are ways to seek reconciliation. And assumptions, you know what those are? Assumptions are like cancer in the soul. And they grow if not dealt with. And you start creating a false narrative of what someone uh, is and what their character is like and what they did and might do in the future that is completely ungrounded in reality. And I've done it more times than I wish were true. But I've learned to try to grow in this area. So as we see, as we go through this list, how it spirals out of control, family breakdown, rejecting God and others with a heart that refuses to forgive and reconcile, to slander individuals and groups. And all of this, we're kind of, we're, we're building into a crescendo here. All of this is encapsulated in a phrase we all know, without self-control. We don't need to spend a whole lot of clock on this time. Without God, humanity does what they enjoy with no regard for the greater good. Without self-control is the same biblical word for incontinent. So what happens when you take a person who is incontinent, whether we're talking about a child or whatever, and uh, uh, you try to what? Temporarily hold back what nobody else, themselves included, want to see or experience with the diaper, right, right? And unfortunately, when we don't have self-control, we are incontinent spiritually in our soul. And oftentimes what our culture and even the church does is try to find quick, easy solutions to spiritual problems. So the spiritual problem could be racism, but it is racism. But if we grab the world's tools and we say, well, I don't want to stick out, so I'm going to adopt everything the world says and put a Christian sticker on it and maybe somehow Christianize it just a little bit instead of falling on our face and saying, God, what would you have us do? Because that's what your pastors did in all this. We intentionally did not post right away after George Floyd's horrific, brutal murder. We did not post. We did not put out a video because we were on our faces asking God, what would you have us do? So when everybody's moved on, when the emotions have cooled and nobody cares, your church gets it right this time because we've got it wrong throughout history. So when everybody else has moved on and culture's bored, Lord, we wanna keep moving forward to this heavenly vision where every knee in every tribe, in every ethnicity, in every skin color bows to Jesus Christ. And we wanted to examine our own hearts. Lord, first, help me get the log out of my own eye. First. 
and not respond with, with some knee-jerk reaction to make society happy, but to build something that will last that's built by Jesus Christ himself. And the log in my own eye was, Lord, and not everyone has to feel this way. I don't know if the rest of the pastors feel this way. I'm just speaking for myself. But Lord, I missed the mark. It was a sin of omission. It wasn't intentional, but I, I wasn't sensitive to what my brothers and sisters who don't look like me experience just a mile away on the other side of the tracks. I have brothers and sisters in those churches and we should have been hand in hand years and years ago, serving the community, serving schools. And out of that, let me tell you what happens. You might think, some of you might have slandered us and assumed that we were being passive and quite the opposite is true. Because here's what will happen if we partner with churches like New Wine Worship and Hollis, who I love to death. Literally, he's become one of my best friends in the entire world. God's bringing us together. We prayed, God, help us to partner with a black and brown church. And guess what? God said, here you go. Out of the blue. And as God builds that, we have to build slow. We've met with him and his leaders, as pastors. We've prayed with them. Uh, our he, he spoke to all 25 or so of our home group leaders. We wrote a paper. Uh, it's a rough draft now just for our leaders, uh, kind of outlining our response and perspective on all of this. And, and we'll, we'll try to get that out. But we, again, we wanna be patient and we go step by step by step. But the goal is to start serving together. Because see, unity comes from the biblical word unit, and it's a military term meaning to advance and defeat the enemy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what will happen if we do these two things? I believe this. I believe this. We'll see if it happens. We want to be faithful to the vision regardless of if it happens or not. Regardless if there's not one speck of fruit, we wanna be faithful because it's the right and godly thing to do. I haven't been more excited about a vision since all the way back when we planted the church. I believe that God is in this. And that is, if we're with our black and brown brothers, walking through life with them, children born, raising children, sick parents, going to the hospital with them, and then with us, walking through hard times, celebrating together, and we're serving other churches together, communities, evangelism together, all of that in time. This is what I think the Lord will do. He'll start partnering up that man with an administrative gift. And this, this woman over here with the vision gift and this person over here who's in uh, medicine. And then he'll, through God's church, there will be uh, uh, different issues within society, different injustices that are ministered to with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not manufactured, but that comes out of unity. This powerful biblical word, unit, military term. We're moving forward together. Because see, the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son love unity and they bless it. They do. It's not a passive word. It's not sitting around singing kumbaya and hanging out. It's more than that. It takes time, but it's worth it. And then maybe there'll be a school that'll be blessed and there'll be uh, uh, education injustices that are addressed. And maybe these over here will be called to, to address legislation. And these over here will have a huge heart for evangelizing the campus and, and, and 
young people will be looking at black and brown and white people hand in hand sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and they'll say, something's different about these folks. So that when society, once again, when it hits the fan next time, we're ready. And they may disagree with us. It might still be the same response, but at least for me and my house, we'll be able to say with integrity, we followed the Lord. And this is where it'll have us so that next time we don't have to look around for black and brown friends because they're already in our lives or white friends for some of you. I'm gonna stop teaching. Um, Lord, we love you. And we thank you for this strong warning you give us, Lord, that man, it's, it's all gonna go to hell before you come back. But Lord, we wanna be aware. We don't wanna have our head in the sand. We don't wanna respond with emotions that are manipulated by culture. Rather, we wanna wear the breastplate of righteousness that guards and protects our heart through your scripture and the leading of you, Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want our minds to think correctly about what other people are like, what their character's like, what they might think and feel by listening well, by having a mind that's, that's uh, saturated in scripture. So please, Lord, help us to put on the helmet of salvation. And Lord, help us with our black and brown and uh, uh, all your, your garden variety. Lord, help us to put on the, uh, to, to fit our feet with the shoes of the gospel so that we may move forward. Lord, and fight injustice at its root and be a real and lasting uh, unity in our world. And Lord, help us to respond with the sword of the spirit to cut through the lies of the enemy and the lies in our own hearts. Lord, please protect us as we move forward. Give us endurance and focus. And help us, Lord, to stay unified and to have tough conversations when necessary, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys, God bless you.